In our previous lesson two weeks ago tonight, I spoke to you about Satan's strategy of deception, which is only one of the many tactics that he uses to separate Christians from God and destroy them. He's chosen the ones, the ones that work best, and we must learn to face them and defeat them. A great part of any victory is to know and to understand the tactics of the enemy, because only then can you make the right counteraction to make them fall. The one that we're going to study tonight is highly powerful and very successful. Even when you are aware of it and know how to turn it back, <clears throat> it is often very difficult to do so. As multitudes of people have experienced in the past and will continue to experience as long as time proceeds. Its power lies in our natural inclination of curiosity. Everybody feels the urge to look at or experience something new, something different, something that <clears throat> offers a surge of excitement. How often do we know that something is bad and to be avoided, but because of the great power of curiosity to see it just one time, to experience it just one time, that overpowers our understanding to avoid it. And so we go right on and do it anyway. Friends, Satan knows very well our inclination to curiosity, and he uses it to great success in causing every one of us to fall on our face at times. This highly effective strategy of his goes by the name of diversion. Diversion. He places something before us that's very interesting, appealing, exciting, very popular because he knows that we are very likely to go for it and to hold our attention for just a while anyway. But that's all that he needs for us to give it our attention for just a little bit. And then he can creep up behind us, grab you, and lead you right into the commission of a sin or the beginning of some sinful practice. He easily leads the bulk of humanity that way into sin and into slavery every day around the world and with us. There's a great deal of scripture to support and illustrate everything that I've said so far and will continue to say. Far too much for me to crowd into this one lesson tonight, but I'll try to use as much as I can and hope it's convincing and useful to all of us in our struggle to defeat Satan and remain loyal to God. Let's consider the first time on record that Satan used diversion to mess up the life of somebody. And of course, it happened right at the beginning. He, he used this one immediately in the Garden of Eden. 
where God only had one rule, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Satan began to divert or distract Eve with an argument by claiming that God had forbidden them not to eat of any tree in the garden. Folks, what he was doing, he was setting her up to enter into his frame of thought, and it worked beautifully. She at once responded, no, no, no. God has not forbidden all of the trees, just one of the trees, and she named it. Then Satan told her, but God is wrong in saying that eating of that special tree will bring death. Instead, he told her, when you eat of it, good things are going to come. First of all, your eyes are going to be opened, and you'll become like God. You'll know good and evil. You'll have great knowledge. He was encouraging her to look with interest and attention on that one tree. And it didn't take very much persuasion. It seldom does if it's something that's appealing to us. The innate urge of curiosity surged within this woman and induced her to do with little resistance or none what she knew she should not do. So we read in Genesis 3 and verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was desirable to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and ate. You see, Satan diverted Eve's attention from God's warning. First, he used an argument to put her into his frame of thought. Second, he lied about the warning that God gave. And third, he persuaded her to look at that tree for just a little while with some interest and attention. When, he fixed, when she fixed her eyes upon that tree, some things began to happen within her. She noticed that the, the tree on the, or the, rather the fruit on that tree was very good. That it was delightful just to look at. And there was the prospect that Satan had told her, if you eat it, it will bring you wisdom, great wisdom. Folks, by that point, she was no longer in control. Satan had gotten control of her. She had let Satan distract her, then slip up behind her and, so to speak, grab her securely. And then she was his. She proceeded to do exactly what he wanted her to do. One, disobey God. Two, commit sin. Three, separate herself from the one who made her. And fourth, start her life on the downward road that ends in death. Brethren, here we see a very graphic event that shows clearly how Satan uses this tactic of diversion and how he finds it easy to use. And most of the time, it's a sure thing. I have little doubt that every one of us here tonight have fallen victim to it many times in our lives, probably within the last two or three days in some way or the other. You know, God has given us 
some abilities to perceive the world about us and interact with the world in a way that is good and that facilitates the endurance and the quality of life. He gave us our five senses to, to deal with the world about us. Anything that God gives us, anything to benefit our lives, Satan usurps it. And he turns it into an instrument that brings evil into our lives. Satan can take something really good and use it to ruin you. In many instances, the Bible specifically speaks of each one of our five senses, both as an instrument for good and as an instrument for evil. In this lesson, we're directing our attention to just one of them, the ability to see with our eyes and how Satan uses it to lead us into sin and corruption. Rather than beholding the beauty of good, Satan works to make us behold the ugliness of sin. In fact, he is, Satan is able to take what is beautiful and good and then turn it into what is ugly and evil. He's a master at it. For example, in, in modern life, back in the 1940s up through the 50s, there were some really good movies made by Hollywood, kind, the kind that you could take your whole family to and be entertained, and they were wholesome. It was good. But you know what? Beginning in the 60s and going on up into the 70s and later, they took those great movies. They altered their plots and remade them. They inserted sordid scenes. And the result was films that were debasing, demoralizing. Jesus spoke of how uh, evil enters our world or in our, our, our life through our eyes. He does this in Matthew 6, verses 22, 23. He says, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now Jesus here is using symbolism as he does so often in the Sermon on the Mount. This is right in the middle of that sermon. He begins with the reality of our eyes and the way that we can see things with them. Light, very often in Scripture, Old and New Testament, symbolizes or represents truth, righteousness, and goodness. And darkness is very often used as the symbol for lies and unrighteousness and evil. If light enters through our eye, our life will be honest and upright and acceptable to God. But if light does not enter through our eye, our life within will be in darkness. That means the darkness of falsehood, of sin, of moral corruption. Folks, 
Satan's business that he stays active in every day, all day, is to divert the vision of people so that light, this kind of light, does not enter their body. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 5 and verse 29, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now here again, Jesus is using symbolism. He is not speaking literally. He does not mean that one should actually take and, and tear out his eye to keep from looking at evil. He means to remove from your life anything that will seduce you to think upon evil and practice it. And most of us know what those things are. There are things about us the sight of which will quickly produce thoughts that are impure or that will stir us up to anger or that will demoralize us. That's what Jesus means by making you stumble. Rather than maintain the equilibrium of good Christian behavior, you're persuaded to do something that's immoral, something violent, something that will discourage and abandon and cause you to abandon your service to Christ. Let me give an example. A professor at Lipscomb once told me that he had in his office a very expensive painting of Christ with a halo around his head. It had been painted back in the Middle Ages, hundreds of years before, and was very precious. One of his students had to come into his office regularly for conferences about writing his master's dissertation. And this young man had been reared as a Catholic and had been converted only a year or two. Now in Catholicism, paintings like I just described are very often used as what are called icons. That means holy things that require you to bow down to them or cross yourself or repeat a special formula that you memorize from their catechism. One day the boy told the professor, Dr. McRae, that painting up there behind you is very, very distracting to me. You see, my background, Catholic, is still very powerful in me. And it makes me, when I see that, want to cross myself or bow to it. It's hard to keep from it because of all the years of the past. So after that, when the boy or a young man had to come in to meet with him, Dr. McRae would take and cover that painting with a cloth that he got so that the student would not see it. It was a, it was a cause of stumbling to that boy, of that young man. It wasn't a boy, it was a young man. And uh, it didn't bother anybody else. They didn't have that kind of a background, but it did him. The word that is translated stumble, used so often in the New Testament, in the original language is pronounced skandalon, skandalon. Now what it really referred to was the little 
um, stick that you put in a trap that you put the bait on. Like in a mouse trap, there's a little flap and you put the cheese on it so that when the animal seizes the, the bait, it releases that stick or flips that little tongue in the mouse trap and he's dead. You see, Satan sets all kinds of traps in our lives and he uses a bait that he knows will attract us and lure us to go for it. And when we do, that trap is sprung and we're just like the mouse in the trap. We're caught in a situation that's sinful and spiritually harmful in any and all of ourselves. We're helpless. We're gone. It's pathetic to see people who are so gullible that they cannot restrain themselves from such attractive seduction when just a little bit of caution and thinking will alert them this looks too good. And folks, most of the time when things look too good, they're a veneer for danger and corruption. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 5.22 to abstain from the appearance of evil. When I was a young person growing up, we were taught that a lot in church. And boys and young people began to make fun of this scripture. That's another way of saying don't do what you like to do. Folks, there are many things which in and of themselves are not evil. But when Satan uses them as bait to cause us to stumble, they're being used to an evil purpose. If we could only recognize these things and situations and restrain ourselves. But folks, we argue. What I'm about to say, I've heard more times than hair on my head when I used to have a whole lot of it. And the argument goes like this. You tell me that's wrong, you just tell me what's wrong with it. Quote some scripture that says it's wrong. Or we shut our minds to the idea that it's probably an inducement to sin. This is fun, this is great, this is good. Don't you tell me it's wrong. In fact, young people ridicule their parents when they give them such warnings. We today ridicule preachers when they tell us that something is a slippery slope into sin. And so preachers don't preach about those things anymore because we've thrown that back at them so many times they're afraid to. They won't speak of those things. Folks, in the 50s, I heard warnings against stuff we don't even dare mention in church today. Jokes are made about such warnings because we think they're foolish. And as we do, Satan is smiling from ear to ear, knowing that we will put pleasure and desire and expectation of advantage before the wisdom of caution. He knows our nature and he uses it to grab us. He lures the greater part of mankind into sin with this strategy. It's easy. It works nearly all the time. Now folks, go with me to a particular scripture. 
1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. There we read this. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. There is something here that promotes this lesson on Satan's use of diversion to lead us craftily into the thraldom of sin when we think that we're really having a good time and nothing is wrong. First, we need to understand, though, the context of this inspired as admonition. <clears throat> when it says love not the world, it does not mean this physical planet that we're living on. The word world has another meaning here that's very plain, at least in the original, or, but even in plain English. When it says the world is not from the Father, if you're thinking of the planet, remember who made the planet. In Genesis 1, it tells us that God made this earth, this world, in, in divisions. And every time he completed a day of creation, he looked upon it and said, it is good. So how can that which is bad be in a world that is not from the Father when the Father made this world? The, the, the resolution of this, folks, is looking at words carefully. In the original language, the word for world, or earth, not world, but earth, is a two-letter word, gata, uh, uh, gamma, eta. It's pronounced gay. Gay, that's the earth. The word that is used here when it says do not love the world is not gay. Not the earth. Not what we're standing on. God made that just fine. The word that is translated world here is cosmos. Cosmos. Now in the New Testament especially, this word world translating cosmos doesn't mean the earth, it means where we're living as a place that is sinful, that is in rebellion against God, that is the domain of Satan. Folks, when I pray to God and pray for this country, I speak of this country as a country that is in rebellion against God because basically it is, predominantly it is. John is saying we must not love this world. 1 Corinthians 7.31 maybe puts it a little clearer when it phrases it as the fashion of this world. Because this world, that is the life and, and um, uh, habits and customs and mores of people, uh, have been corrupted by Satan with attractions and inducements that divert our attention from God to his schemes. Sin is ugly, foul, grotesque in its raw form. If you could see sin as it really is, it would nauseate you. You would never go for it. So Satan doesn't show it to us that way. 
He hides it beneath a veneer, a facade of what looks good and fun and popular and thrilling. That's the side that we see. We don't see what's behind it. He knows us thoroughly. Satan knows that no matter how much we teach in church, very few people are going to pay any attention to this scripture. Proverbs 22, 22 verse 3. The prudent sees the evil and covers himself. But the naive, the King James Version says the fool, the naive go on and are punished for it. The bait that Satan places before us daily looks good. It looks appealing. It looks like it's fun. It's the going fashion. It's what everybody else is doing. How can it be bad? So we want to enjoy it, to be a part of it. We want to be in the middle of what's going on. We want to look like everybody else. There are three things here that John says composes worldliness. The second one is the subject of this lesson on diversion tonight, the lust of the eyes. That's the only one of these three I'm really going to talk about. Visual attraction is a bait that Satan uses to grab and hold our attention so that we don't see him coming up behind us and enfolding his evil arms and claws about us and gripping us till we cannot get loose. Remember Eve in the garden when it says that she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes to make one wise? Folks, that was the lust of the eyes at work in that woman leading her without any resistance at all to disaster. What was wrong with eating a perfectly formed and delicious piece of fruit? Usually nothing. Who could turn down a Washington State apple or a golden delicious apple? But this time, what was wrong? It came from the wrong place. And taking it was in defiance of a prohibition. Folks, most of the time when there's a prohibition, that's a dare to people to do it. And they do it. I did an experiment one time when I was teaching at Friendship. I took a red Sharpie and made a little red spot up on the wall, four walls to the room, just in one place, I made a little red spot, just about as big as the end of my finger. I didn't say anything. It wasn't very long to somebody said, Mr. Whitey, what's that red spot up there? Out of all the spots to look at, the red one, one tiny little red spot, I said, folks, that's a danger spot. I said, that is just pulsating with high voltage. If you touch it, you're gone. Don't touch it. I had it kind of high. Well, I acted like after that I didn't pay attention, but I was paying close attention. Folks, as the kids went out the door or went to the pencil sharpener, what do you think they did? Put their hands right on that spot, their finger. And then they looked at me. Folks, what was wrong with eating 
that piece of fruit, whatever it was. Nothing, normally. But folks, if we just judge things in life without considering the context that they're in, we're right on the edge of the slippery slope that leads to sin, captivity of sin, and then ruin. Many of these things are good in and of themselves, but they're bad when they're the bait that Satan is using to entrap us. Well, if they're good, but Satan can use them as bad, how can we tell the difference? The biblical word that provides the answer is discernment, which is another word for wisdom. In Hebrews 5.14, we're told that solid food is for the mature, which because of practice have their senses uh, trained to discern good and evil. In the context, the word mature translates teleon, teleon. Folks, whenever that word occurs in the New Testament, it's denoting a well-taught, experienced Christian whose senses have been trained to look at situations and things and activities and to tell the difference between the good and the evil that are mixed up in them. Our world is a mixture. It's the way it comes to us now, a mixture of good and evil because Satan is using the good things of this world as bait to divert our attention from the things that are bad. It takes training to tell the difference and that's what the teaching is for. That's why we need teaching, more teaching and more teaching after that. We're only doing a fraction of the teaching we should be doing. Too often, Christians are far less interested in discerning good and evil than the allure of fun and popularity that are involved. So many people seem not to see such uh, requirements as 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of of evil. The King James says appearance of it. Satan's presence and activity which are, is very real is ignored. Why? Why do we ignore it? Because we want to fit into popular culture. Because we want to go with the flow of other people. That's so powerful. His strategy of, strategy of diversion is very powerful and very effective. Now in the last about eight minutes we're going to look at the prime case where Satan used this strategy of diversion and fell on his face. He failed totally. And this case in our example, as, is, is our example as Christians to use when we need to defeat the devil trying to divert us. Turn with me to Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Satan here came face to face with Jesus and he tried his very best to divert him from his mission of redeeming human souls from sin and establishing the kingdom of God right here on this earth. It's the church. He used his most powerful strategies on Jesus. The ones that knock you and me on our face sometimes. 
He used him to, over, to try to overthrow our Lord and to get him dis, uh, disowned as being the Son of God. One of them, one of these three temptations is what I'm talking about tonight, and it's the only one we'll look at. It's related there in verses 8 through 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all this I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, and folks, there was passion when he said this, get out of my way, Satan, get out of my face. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you worship. It was Jesus' mission to get what Satan was offering, all the kingdoms of the world, but to get them for God. Satan said, I can give every one of them to you because they're, they're mine right now. All you have to do is one simple little thing. It won't take but a minute or two, and then I'll give it to you. It'll all be yours just like that. To make the offer as appealing as possible, Satan somehow that we cannot understand caused all the kingdoms of the world to pass before Jesus' eyes like a panorama with their glory. How he did it, we don't know. But notice this. In 2 Corinthians 11 verse 14, it indicates that Satan has the power to transform himself into an angel of light. And in Genesis 3, he came before Eve in the form of a snake. Folks, you won't see an angel from heaven in this world. But you might sometimes see what could be taken as an angel, but it's the devil in disguise. Folks, it must have been a, a fantastic sight to see all these uh, pictures of the kingdoms of the world and their glory pass before Jesus. And Satan, in effect, was saying, what you see is what you get. All you have to do is simple, easy. Just fall down right here before me and give me some worship. That won't take 60 seconds to do that, and then I'll give it all to you. It'll be yours right there in your hand. Folks, if rather than Jesus being there, this had been said to stalling, or to Alexander the Great, or Julius Caesar, or Nebuchadnezzar, they couldn't have gotten down on their knees fast enough and praised Satan. But Jesus in his human condition was foremost in a long way in having his senses trained to discern good and evil. The kingdoms of the world and their glory were doubtless very attractive to Jesus or it wouldn't have been a temptation. But he knew that that which he had come here to get, Satan was on this occasion using as the bait in a trap to get him. By falling down and worshiping Satan, Christ would have instantly lost his preeminence as the only begotten Son of God. He would have become a servant of the devil. So he immediately and defiantly refused, resolutely quoting 
Deuteronomy 6 and verse 13, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you worship. Then he commanded Satan, get out of my way. Get out of my presence. Leave me. And you know what? The devil didn't have any choice. He ran. This is an occasion when Satan ran from a place. He was using his best tactic. Brethren, if you take anything that the devil offers you that you strongly want, you will not be the same person afterward. You've wrecked your Christian identity when you do it. You've put yourself willingly in the grip of sin. Whatever it was that seemed so attractive and desirable comes at the cost of getting the trap sprung upon you. Trapped in sin. Sin that has only one outcome for us, destruction eternally. Folks, when you accept anything the devil is offering you and you take it, you will not be okay. Even if it was fun, if it seemed easy, a passing thing, by tomorrow you forgot except the fun of it. You're not the same person you were before. You don't belong to Christ. You're in Satan's power. He's got you. And folks, it's not worth it. I would like to close this lesson tonight with a, a, a quotation that I'd like for you to consider, not just quickly as I say it and forget it, but hold it in your mind. Think about it tonight. Sleep on it. Dream about it, hopefully. It's the question that Jesus asked each of us in Mark 8, 36. What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul. If Satan came to you and said, I will give you a hundred billion dollars and make you the richest person on the face of the earth, you can have what you want, you can do what you want, you won't have to work again or bend yourself to do any task. You can eat the best. Go to the best places. All you have to do is just take it and give yourself to me. Folks, who would turn it down? I hope every Christian would. Because if you don't, you're ruined. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Thank you for being a wonderful audience tonight.